This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Next week, lawmakers will reconvene at the state capitol for the 2017 legislative session, likely with pledges of bipartisanship and goodwill. However, Colorado's lawmakers are among the most polarized in the country. That's according to research by two political scientists who have studied polarization for more than a decade. Boris Shore joins us from the University of Houston. When you say that uh, legislators are more polarized, polarized here in Colorado, what do you mean? In terms of votes they take or the ideologies of the bills they introduce? Well, obviously, uh, both are, are, are related. Uh, and, and what I mean by polarization is that the distance between the parties uh, is greater than it's ever been since we rec- started recording the data. And, and, that, and, and by the distance, I mean their, kind of their ideological uh, position. Uh, Democrats are as liberal as they've ever been, and Republicans are as conservative as they've ever been. And when did you start recording this or, or studying this? Uh, this is uh, the date I have on Colorado starts in the uh, mid-90s. So you're looking at voting patterns, and you're finding votes increasingly go down party lines? Exactly. Exactly. It's not just, and it's not just uh, party lines. It's that the, uh, the internal variation of the parties is, is as small as it's ever been. In other words, there used to be you know, liberal Republicans. There used to be conservative Democrats. But increasingly... Uh, those don't exist anymore. And now the most liberal Republican and the most conservative Democrat are really very far apart, whereas in the past there used to be overlaps. Could it be possible that only uh, more polarizing issues have come up to vote and not, not the ideology of the, of the actual legislature? Um, it, it's possible. Uh, you know, it, and parties do try to, when they control the, um, the chambers, they do try to control the agenda. Uh, but there are things that come onto the agenda despite uh, uh, the ability of the parties to control them. Uh, and, and it's also the case that um, we can assess the legislators' ideological stances even apart from what comes up in the state house. For example, we can actually survey, and many organizations do survey, uh, legislative candidates. You know, what do you think about this and what do you think about that uh, on, on a variety of issues that don't necessarily come up for a vote. And is that the Project Vote Smart survey that you're using? Exactly. That's part. Of, that's part of the data set that I'm using. Is that Project Vote Smart is this nonpartisan uh, organization that asks state legislative uh, candidates every uh, every election cycle on a whole host of controversial issues on abortion and same sex marriage and marijuana and so forth. Uh, uh, what they think about these things. So even if they don't come up for a vote, we can sort of assess where the where the parties lie. Now, Colorado, you say, is one of the most polarized. Uh, what is some of the other? What are some of the other states that that are similarly polarized? Well, I just took a fresh look at my data, and it actually Colorado now holds the crown for being the most polarized state in the entire most country. Uh, the most polarized, and 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 it took 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 that uh, distinction away from California, which had for a long time been the most polarized. And California is now a close number two to Colorado. So the the speed of Colorado's polarization is also the first uh, is first in the country. It's just absolutely stunning how fast it's grown from. Uh, kind of a more moderate distance between the parties to now the most extreme distance between the parties of the entire country. And and what you're studying, we, we've actually had many reporters who've covered the Colorado State House for several years say they've seen this firsthand. Uh, one of them is Ed Sealover with the Denver Business Journal. The truth is there's not a lot of people left in the legislature you could refer to as moderates. Uh, I wrote back when Hickelooper got elected in 2010 that he plucked almost all of the remaining moderates out of the legislature at that point to be in his cabinet, and they've not been replaced by moderates. 
and that's Governor John Hickenlooper. Uh, sea Lover said some votes, voters and business groups hope that the new open primaries, which passed in November, will help bring in more moderate candidates. Is there any evidence that letting independent voters participate in primaries uh, help uh, cut down on that polarization? Well, actually, unfortunately, the answer is no. Uh, and many states have experimented with a variety of primary forms, uh, especially uh, opening up primaries, moving away from sort of closed primaries where independents and the people from the other party could not can't participate. And basically, uh, and I've done research on this with a with a number of co-authors, and we find there's absolutely no evidence that there's a difference between the sorts of people elected under open primaries versus uh, more closed primaries. Now, the only uh, place where there's maybe a glimmer of hope is in the top two primary reform, which has been recently adopted in California and uh, a little bit further back in Washington State. And there, there's a little bit of evidence that it's, it's elect that's helped elect somewhat more moderate people, but it's it's very very slight. And 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 if I understand correctly, in Colorado, the open primary system is not a top two uh, like you have in California or Washington State. Explain real quick what the top two means. Right. So the top two system is in the primary. There's a, everybody runs together, no matter what party you are mm-hmm. in the primary uh, in the summer. And the top two go on to the general election in the fall. And those top two could be members of the same party, uh, with the idea being that uh, it could create some moderation the, there. Right. Right. Exactly. So so you could sort you could be the more moderate of the two of the two Democrats, let's say, if it's a Democratic uh, district. Uh, and get gain support for moderates and 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 and, and Republicans, uh, and thereby win rather than the sort of the by default the, the more extreme one. But and it looks like it's worked, but only for California Democrats. It hasn't worked for California Republicans. Hasn't worked for Washington State Republicans or Democrats. So uh, I would say the evidence is pretty slim that these kind of reforms appear to work. So what's the effect in in other states that have held the top spot? Uh, You know, California was recently one. We're now number one. What happens when there's a high degree of polarization? Well, it's very difficult to get policy done, but there's a significant catch of that. It's it's difficult to get things done when there are rules or institutions that mandate, uh, you know, high burdens or high thresholds for getting things done. So, for example, in California, uh, they previously had um, supermajority rules for passing budgets for raising taxes. Uh, Now, they got rid of the supermajority rule for passing budgets. And despite the fact that California is highly polarized, they're able to get a lot of things done. Why is that? And the reason is because the party essentially is controlled. Sorry, the state is essentially controlled by Democrats, right? Both chambers and the governorship. uh, And the minority Republicans can't basically do anything about it. Now, in a state like Colorado, things are different. Uh, and it's worse, I would say, because you have a divided state house. Um, and what that means is that you know, both sides are going to put up extreme legislation that the other side does not want. Uh, and in that case, kind of polarization leads to gridlock and policy paralysis. Uh, whereas in a state like California, which is polarized, doesn't necessarily happen. Now, Colorado has something equivalent to a filibuster, uh, but it's much harder for a lawmaker to put off a vote. It's rarely effective. Are you seeing that in other states where that may come into play, a filibuster? Right. So it's extremely effective, of course, as we know, in Congress. But at the state level, there's very few instances that a filibuster 
you know, meaningfully means that you need a supermajority to pass things. Now, typically, right. the supermajorities come from other other rules about uh, you know passing budgets or or, or bond issues or, or or you know running deficits or that sort of thing. But uh, you know, there's the, the famous filibuster in in, in Texas uh, by Wendy Davis um, on the abortion issue, and basically, you know, all 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 Texas Republicans had to do was start a new special session of the legislature and they passed the abortion bill they wanted. Why does the degree of polarization matter? Why why is this interesting to you? Well, it's interesting because uh, you know, parties are really the building blocks of American democracies, and it's sort of unprecedented how far the two parties are apart, or at least unprecedented recent history, how far they're apart. Um, and ever since the 1960s, we've seen the parties grown ever further apart. And, and why that's important is because uh, we have our American legislative, you know, and, and governmental institutions require a lot of bipartisanship and compromise. And the further the parties are apart, the harder it is to get things done. Now, what's different about the states as opposed to the federal government? Federal government is often divided, and that cause makes polarization a big problem uh, when you have divided government. But in a lot of the states, uh, governments are divided, uh, and you have a single party running things. That's not the case in Colorado, but it's the case in many other states. So polarization presents a different problem. In those states, the parties are just very, very extreme relative to the voters who lie in the middle between the two parties. And so when an extreme party takes control of the entire government, both chambers as well as the governorship, they can implement extreme policies that are really far from what voters kind of want. We talked with Seth Maskett. He's a political scientist at DU about why this polarization is occurring. He says the sharp change that you find in the mid-2000s where lawmakers voted, uh, votes got much more polarized corresponded with a change to campaign finance laws in trying to make parties weaker. He says the law steered more money to interest groups, and that has led to more polarization. Here's what he had to say. Basically, political parties tend to be kind of a moderating force. In some ways in politics, they're the ones who are focusing on the most moderate candidates for the most competitive districts, and most other donors are interested in just just have much more ideological goals. And I think you see that very starkly in Colorado. And he also said the people you see interested in running for office now are also more liberal Democrats and more conservative Republicans. Are there any other explanations you've considered for why this increase in polarization is happening in Colorado? Right. So I've, I've investigated a number of, uh, a, a number of potential causes. Uh, one, uh, we think rising inequality has something to do with it. Uh, another is the way, uh, districts are, are, are drawn in the state. Uh, so you have a number of, of purple districts in Colorado, uh, and they're purple only because, uh, not because so much that they are contained also sorts of moderate individuals, but rather because there's sort of a mix between, say, a college town, say, say, say Boulder, and the surrounding uh, uh, suburban and exurban areas, which are much, much more uh, conservative. And in the districts like those, of which there are you know, quite a few in Colorado, uh, you have uh, this kind of distribution of opinion. There's a, a lots of re- relatively liberal de- uh, Democrats and relatively conservative Republicans. And the incentives for legislators are to sort of turn out the base in those kind of districts, even though they look, you know, 50-50, that they vote 50-50, say, in presidential elections. Uh, what legislators see is, well, I've got to turn out my base because I have no hope of appealing to the other side. Boris, thanks for joining us. Um, my pleasure. Thank you. 
Boris Shore is a professor of political science at the University of Houston. Uh, we talked about his research that shows Colorado's legislature is among the most polarized in the country, the most polarized in the country. Find a link to his research site at cprnews.org and tune in Monday to Colorado Matters when Ryan Warner will interview Republican and Democratic legislative leaders from the state capitol. Still to come, the founding marijuana editor for the Denver Post is leaving. We'll ask him about Colorado's current pot landscape. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. When the Denver Post hired Ricardo Baca in 2013 as its marijuana editor, the first for a mainstream newspaper, the nation took notice. Baca headed the Cannabis, a marijuana-specific website for the Denver Post, to tremendous success. Besides his site garnering more views than High Times magazine, Baca's been named one of the seven most powerful people in American cannabis by Forbes magazine. Last week, he announced he's leaving the Cannabis and the Denver Post. Ricardo, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you for having me. By all measurements, the cannabis has been a great success uh, for the Post and and you personally. Why choose to to pick up and leave right now? You know, it's it's all about opportunity and the future. Uh, an amazing opportunity has presented itself to me, um, and, and that opportunity is ultimately going to allow me to grow into a different space. And all I've ever known is journalism. I mean, I studied it in college and practiced it throughout college. And yeah. for the last 20 years, I've been lucky enough to work for some great news organizations, including The Post, for 15 years. And here on the precipice of my turning 40, I just kind of <laughs> took a look at my life. And in an age of corporate ownership, of course, the Denver Post is owned by a Hedge fund out of New York City. I want other skills in my bag uh, other than journalism. I want to learn some more, and this is what I'm doing here. So you're leaving journalism. What can you tell us about this new gig? Yeah. So I can tell you a little bit, okay. uh, a little bit more than what I've been <laughs> able to say before. But I am joining a, a, a tech startup in a leadership capacity, and it is a it is a cannabis tech startup. And so I'm not going too far away from this industry that I've been covering uh, in depth for more than three years. Is this like being a spokesman or something for this this tech startup? What's kind of the, the gist of what your role will be? You know, I think a spokesperson would be somewhat similar to what I've been doing for the last three years, mm-hmm. really, especially hosting podcasts and 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 talk shows. Um, I can say that it's it's a leadership capacity mm-hmm. and some the kind of position that I've never really considered taking on. But when it presented itself, it really made sense to me, especially from the perspective that I've I've had the fortune of starting some great things at the post and and practicing those entrepreneurial muscles, creating a music festival, a music blog, a cannabis news and culture website. And now I'm going to really kind of open up those wings and see what what I can do outside of the Denver Post infrastructure. So another little feather in your cap, so to speak, right? A feather in the cap, yeah. (laughs) And definitely a new skill set to really learn and uh, open myself up to the world a little bit. Going back, uh, what were your first thoughts when you heard that the Post wanted to start a marijuana website? You know, the rumor was flying around the newsroom in mid-2013 that our editor at the time, Greg Moore, wanted to do something like that. And and when I first heard it, at first I said, well, that's kind of crazy, but it also makes sense because we all knew that we in Washington were the first people to legalize this substance, and this was going to be a big story. And so it kind of made sense to me when I first heard that they were considering doing it. 
And with the success of the cannabis, that's the the site that is linked to the Denver Post, uh, there were thoughts that would provide a roadmap for solving some of the financial issues that the Post was experiencing. Did you feel any pressure from that as editor that that you and your pot reporters were somehow going to save the entire newspaper with this (laughs) new model of... What you were doing? You know, like I'll always remember that first week after the announcement and one of my colleagues came up to me and he said, so you're basically going to save the newspaper, right? <laughs> and I was like, well, let's hold, let's stay, take a step back here really quick. Um, I, I, I'm really proud that throughout most of its incarnation, the, the cannabis was self-sustaining. It really had paid for itself and now it's very successful. And as you mentioned, we've beat high times for five out of the last six months in terms of digital traffic. And we just had a monster month in November. The Comscore data came out. We had 1.2 million unique visitors in that time. And so I'm incredibly proud. It feels good to be going out on top two. You know, that was a great month. My team and I really planned as much as we could to cover cannabis's most important election that we've ever known. And, and, and now I'm leaving them in a good place to really succeed and take it forward. Are you comfortable talking metrics like this? Your, your job is marijuana. I've, I've listened to your podcast. I've looked at your video. It's kind of laid back and you talk about what you did over the weekend. Sure. Is this, is this different for you? You know, uh, is is what different for me? The the new gig? The, the, or? Well, well, the metric side of things, like, you know, this, this, and this, as opposed to the actual journalism, getting deep into these stories oh, and, sure. and, 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 and discussing the importance of, of, of pot in Colorado, what you, you know, say? I, I do think that journalism is starting to change uh, in such a way that we used to be church and state separation, uh, advertising and editorial. And while we are still that for the most part, I do think it's important for some of these niche products like the cannabis inside the Denver Post, that journalists start thinking a little bit more about the business side, understanding that. And of course, it's a new world where every journalist in America now literally knows how well their most recent five stories are performing. And then you can learn a lot from that. This readership wants more of this. So let's give it to them. So it is very much a new era in journalism. and, And I think this has been an experiment in that kind of shift. Ricardo Baca, former editor of The Cannabis, uh, you spent time with some of the all-time famous stoners like Willie Nelson. <laughs> Are there any stories or favorite experiences that, that you, you'll remember from this time at The Cannabis? Oh, yeah. You know, the, the access we got was really spectacular. And I think it came along with being one of the first entities in cannabis media to really take it on from a journalist perspective, not activism. And so, yeah, sitting on the couch with uh, Whoopi Goldberg and Barbara Walters at The View was pretty huge. And flying out to New York uh, the weekend of the Super Bowl when the Broncos uh, got got their butt kicked by the Seahawks <laughs> to be on George Stephanopoulos's Sunday morning show and to sit around some I- intense policymakers and thinkers having a great conversation. And certainly a couple of months ago, being out on uh, Willie Nelson's tour bus, the Honeysuckle Rose with, Annie, with Willie, his wife Annie, and just having a spectacular hour-long conversation conversation documenting, uh, you know, Willie Nelson's personal cannabis history uh, to a detail that had really never been done before. It's all been so incredibly rewarding. In November, a number of states, uh, including California, Massachusetts, uh, passed measures allowing either recreational or medical marijuana. Do you think that was a national referendum on pot? 
I think if there ever was going to be one, that was certainly it. Uh, in 2014, we saw, uh, or 2012, we saw Colorado, Washington, 14, a, a, a political midterm. We saw Alaska, Oregon, and D.C., and then everything blew up this, this last year, of course, because uh, cannabis referendums went eight for nine at the ballot box on last November, and that, that really was a statement. And I think especially moving forward into a Trump administration with a potential AG, Jeff Sessions, you know, this... Uh, they can't ignore that anymore, even though Sessions is very much one of the top critics of legalization and enemies of legal cannabis. Um, you know, you can, can he not? I don't think he can afford to not pay attention to what just happened and also what the most legitimate polling is saying out there. Pew Gallup is saying that. Uh, you know, legalization is at an all-time high. Americans want this substance to be decriminalized and to be legalized. And so it's going to be fascinating. And it's a very important time for the journalists who are continuing to cover cannabis at this level. Well, there's also this banking issue that's coming up. You know, pot shops aren't allowed to use the federal banking system. How does that get resolved? Uh, well, I think how it gets resolved is ultimately um, a critical mass. And so we just saw eight states coming on board with recreational or medical. And now just imagine what that means for the number of representatives and congressmen who are now advocating for their localities in D.C. and saying, this is legal in my state. And now these businesses, these businessmen and businesswomen need the security of banking because when you think about it, this is an incredibly dangerous conundrum where these businesses don't have access to it. And they're, they're having to, f to hire security firms to move massive amounts of cash, massive amounts of product. They pay their monthly sales tax revenues to the state in cash in many cases. And so I think with that um, advanced level of representation that, that um, hopefully a banking solution will follow in, in, in the next year. So how long, four years, eight years, you know, 12 years, will, will marijuana be legal in the United States, do you think? Will it ever? I could see this happening in the next 10 years. Uh, everybody knows how slow federal government moves, you know, and, and I think that's been evident on this issue of, of cannabis where, one, we've had misinformation for decades, and now that we know more, and now that we're less afraid of this substance, we're starting to see that slow progression forward to a more sensible point of, of rulemaking. And so within the next decade, I, I definitely see that happening. Will Colorado then continue to be a national leader here? I think Colorado's days as a national leader are a bit numbered. Um, we will always have this special time that we have been guiding this conversation, and, and we are still very much in the driver's seat. But, you know, you just have to look at the mammoth size of California, its congressional representation, not to mention its history, its rich history with this, with this plant, you know, growing it in the north, selling it throughout the nation's oldest medical marijuana system. And when they debut their massive of recreational system, I think suddenly we become a lot less important, as does everybody else in the space, just because they're so massive. So for your marijuana journalists at The Cannabis, uh, what are their next stories? What will they be covering in the next, you know, six to eight months? 
Uh, very much uh, Sessions, Trump, his administration, as well as some of these uh, business conundrums that we've talked about, you know, from from banking to pesticides to these businesses that are so often still stuck in a, a, a black market way of thinking. Because let's remember that this substance is still relatively newly legal and they have to go to from the black market into the regulated market, into the sunshine. And of course, it's a great disinfectant. And what we're seeing is that this industry is showing and proving that it can be done responsibly. And as evidenced by our governor, who really has made a a 180 degree turn on legalization, saying this can be done responsibly. And that's a huge turn from where he's been throughout the first two years of legalization. And they'll still be reviewing marijuana samples? Absolutely. In fact, uh, the cannabis just announced today that uh, one of our lead pot critics, Jake Brown, will be taking on the hosting duties of the cannabis show, which is a, a talk show and podcast that I hosted for about 100 episodes. So they're very much moving forward uh, and, and tackling every issue that matters the most to Coloradans and to others throughout the national and international space. Ricardo, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Ricardo Baca is the former editor of The Cannabis, the Denver Post marijuana-specific website. Baca has left the paper to join a new marijuana industry startup. He joined us to talk about those plans in his tenure at The Post. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Take a horse, a gun, some balloons, a stopwatch, and what do you get? What you get is mounted shooting. It's the fastest growing equine sport in the country, and you can see it live tomorrow and Sunday at the National Western Stock Show, which kicks off this weekend in Denver. Dee Chapman of Larkspur, Colorado, and her daughter Biven are here with us to explain the sport. They'll both compete this weekend. Uh, Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you. I've heard mounted shooting shares a lot with barrel racing. Uh, For those that don't know what that is, uh, can you explain what barrel racing is? Barrel racing is a rodeo event. It's a timed event on horseback with with three barrels. You have an electric eye that starts and stops your time, and fastest girl wins. And you just tear down there, go around the barrels, and come racing back, Yep, right? get in, get around them, and get out. So with mounted shooting, you have a, a pistol or a shotgun in your hand at the time. We have two guns in our hands. We okay. draw our first gun and shoot five targets and then holster and draw our second gun and shoot five targets. And it's still timed. And, and they're balloons set up down, down the line. Yes, we have 80-some patterns that we shoot in the Cowboy Mounted Shooting Association. And uh, it's timed. You just It's fastest person that shoots all their targets. So uh, are you firing live ammunition here? We're shooting blanks. Okay. So how, well, then how does the... How do the balloons explode? How, do, how does that work? <laughs> do you, uh, Bivin, yeah. Um, they, we have black powder in a shell. Okay. And the black powder comes out um, burning and it pops the balloons. Oh, so it's almost like the heat from that pops the balloons. In yeah, sense. The, the burnt powder comes out like a shotgun blast and uh, it'll pop the balloons. Now, is there prize money in, in this event? There is prize money. Not a lot. If, if we pay our entry fees, we are getting rich. You're good. <laughs> now, now, Bivin, you're 16 years old, right? Yes. How long have you been competing in this sport? I've been competing in this sport for about nine or ten years now. I started when I was about six. We got into this sport um, 
by my mom and I barrel racing six days a week, and wow. my dad and I, or my dad was doing ground shooting, uh-huh. and we basically just put the two sports together and made it a family sport together. So it's like you can hang out now and then do this kind of similar things. Yes, we now, do. Is he also involved in this? Your husband? He, he is. is. Okay. Now you're up against other teenagers, uh, Bivin. Uh, do you compete against your mom and other adults as well? Or I do. I there are six levels and one one group of um, twelve and under kids. Uh-huh. When you're when you're twelve and up, you start shooting with the adults and everyone. There's six levels and the levels are split up um, between regular open classes and senior classes. So now what level are you now? I'm a level five. Okay. And you hope to be level six sometime soon? Yes. I hope to be a level six later this year. Now, now are you the, uh, a level six? I am a level six shooter, yes. So she could be competing against you not too long from now. She is already. Oh. Like, we all compete in the same match for the end result, and then we also compete within our classes. In our family, we compete for the remote control. Remote? <laughs> Explain that. What do you mean? <laughs> the, whoever finishes the highest at the, at the shoot gets the c- control of the remote until the next shoot. Oh, to watch television. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so she's going to overtake that remote control uh, uh, responsibility. You you're, you're breaking up. I can't, I can't catch you there. <laughs> <laughs> is, is there a mounted shooting circuit like bull riding where you go across the country doing these? There is. There is. There's there's ones all across the country. For example, this weekend at Stock Show, we have people coming from all over Kansas, Utah. We even have somebody coming from Georgia. Wow. So it is a, it is a, a countrywide. Is it worldwide yet? It's not worldwide. There are a few um, clubs started in France, but it's hard with the gun rights. I see. That's an interesting point to, to, to point out there. Uh, you're with Colorado Matters. We're talking to Dee and Bivin Chapman. They're both top-level mounted shooters, which is a sport where riders shoot targets from horseback. This sounds pretty tough for the horses, too. Uh, how do you train a horse for something like this with the loud noises and all that? The, the joke in mounted shooting is that you can shoot off any horse once. And then the the second time they won't let you. But in reality, it's just like roping or or any other equine sport where the horse just needs to learn to do their job despite the distraction. And if we have a good uh, foundation with the horse, the horse handles, can change directions, change speed. And you've got a good relationship with your between the horse and rider. The gunfire just becomes a distraction that that happens in the arena. So I'm assuming the horse has to be pretty good at barrel, barrel running before you can move to this next step by adding the guns on top of it. Yes, a, a barrel racing horse would make a good mounted shooting horse, a roping horse. Um, the the sport is so new. We see horses coming from lots of different disciplines, including endurance riding, trail riding, just a little bit of everything. Now, now, how new is this sport? Uh, in offhand, if you know, yeah, the sport's been around since the 1990s, late okay. in the 90s, um, and really has grown in popularity primarily the last 10 years. And why has it gotten so popular, uh, Bivin? I think it's really popular because it's such a family-oriented sport. Just about anybody can do it and be competitive in it because there are so many levels and um, it's really inviting and um, the community is really friendly. And I heard it didn't start out as a rodeo sport. Is that right? No, it didn't. It started uh, similar to the SAS ground shooting, the Single Action Shooters Society. A similar format to that, dressing up in period clothing and 
And uh, it was more the dress-up side of the event than the competition side of the event initially. Like historical reenactment type of thing? Similar, yes. Okay. Yes. So when you first first started doing it, it was more period clothing and things like that. But right. now, now you're definitely in, in Western modern cowboy gear. Is that what you wear now when you're out on the uh, in the ring? Right. We have both. You can still dress up. You can still do the reenactment type stuff. You can dress in cavalry attire. You can dress in old barmaid attire. There's still lots of women that make and compete in beautiful dresses and, and the men in the old time pants. But most competitors compete in modern rodeo attire. Is that the more comfortable way to go or less flashy, I guess? Oh, no. That's all about the <laughs> bling and the flash. I think either way you go. <laughs> Um, has it been tough to balance, uh, Bivin, these competitions with the expectations of just being a kid, being a teenager? Um, this has kind of just become my life. Um, when we travel, I bring my homework with me from school, and um, I've, I've, I used to play sports, but um, this has just become everything that I, that I do, really. And, and you want to continue doing it, I'm assuming, and, and, and I, grow the sport. Will you become an ambassador, I guess, for the sport, maybe? I would. That would be. That would be great. Now, what, as as a mom, is this something that you uh, you want to continue doing with your daughter and your whole family? It seems like. Absolutely. I mean, we all we all work hard together during the week with our horses and doing chores. We load up the trailer, hit the road together. That windshield time is priceless. I mean, we're all in the truck together to visit and talk and with the dogs going down the road to where we're going to go. And when we get to the competitions, that's when we lose her. We never see her. She's off with her friends. And <laughs> but it's, it's a good, healthy thing. <laughs> How many competitions do you do a year? Oh, geez. We compete almost every weekend. In Colorado, there's only uh, two weekends a month with shoots. But during the summer months and, and when we travel to other states and warmer climates, um, there's something going on every weekend. Now, the National Western Stock Show kicks off tomorrow, I believe. It does. Uh, is that important to, still to Colorado in your eyes, the fact that you're highlighting these these sports and these competitions? Oh, yes. And and we're thankful for the opportunity to, to showcase our sport at a place like the National Western. It draws uh, new people to the sport that maybe have never seen it before. Um, and it's it's still a friendly environment. We get to visit with spectators and people can come down and be around the horses and pet them and smell them and and get involved. It's 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 really a lot of fun. And Bivin, what are you looking forward to besides the uh, the the the, the uh, adventure participating in? I don't know. I'm just excited to to go play and have fun compete. Now, now, let's talk about competing. What are your expectations for your family going into this uh, competition this weekend? What do you think? We're expected to go win it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's your thought, too? It is. It is. <laughs> First, D second, and third. <laughs> there you go. Uh, D Biven, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you Thank for you. having us. D Chapman and her daughter, Biven Chapman. You can see both of them compete in the Cowboy Mounted Shooting Competition this weekend at the National Western Stock Show in Denver. Entrance to the event is free. Up next, horned beavers and whales with legs. That's right. There's some of the extreme mammals on display at a Denver museum. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Ever heard of horned beavers? 
Can you imagine an elk with antlers spanning seven feet? Well, they both make an appearance in Extreme Mammals, an exhibit at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science that ends on Sunday, in the form of fossils and reconstructions, of course. Some of these bizarre creatures lived right here in Colorado. In October, I sat down with paleontologist Tyler Leeson, who helped put the show together. Tyler, welcome back to the program. Yeah, Nathan, thanks a lot for having me. If you're in the West long enough, uh, you'll know the legend of the fictional jackalope. Uh, that's a jackrabbit with antlers, but a horned beaver in Colorado, that also sounds pretty fictional. I know, right? It's one of these <laughs> bizarre animals, like straight out of a Dr. Seuss book. Yeah. And But in fact, we have fossil evidence for these animals. They lived right here in Colorado. Uh, we have horned beavers that lived about 8 million years ago uh, near Salida. And in fact, uh, some of my colleagues at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science have been doing fieldwork in that area where they've recently found some new horn beavers living in, uh, alongside uh, 14-foot camels uh, and some other really interesting, interesting animals. Describe how this beaver looks. Is, is the horn on, it, on his forehead? Where, where is this? What, give, it, give us an example. Yeah. So the, these beavers were about the size of a house cat. So they weren't that big. Okay. Um, they, the horns were sort of right between their eyes and just a little bit in front of their eyes. And the horns were a couple inches high. And what was the reason for having them? Yeah, that is one of those questions for any of these weird adaptations in this exhibit. That is the question, why have this adaptation? And in the case of the horned beaver, there were sort of two different ideas that were put out there. One was that it helped the, these animals dig because these things are, are burrowing. They're fo- what's called fossorial. Mm-hmm. And, but the more commonly accepted uh, idea now is that it was for defense, so it was defending itself from sort of the, the equivalent of, of, of eight million year old fox and, and coyotes. And we've posted a photo of a horned beaver fossil and an artist's rendering of what the animal may look like at CPRnews.org. Odd horns aren't the only strange headgear uh, at this exhibit, are they? No, that's right. There's a, well, there's a number of different types of antlers, uh, horns, and uh, teeth. I mean, so we have some wonderful array of teeth, you know, saber-toothed cats to baleen whales, these whales that have these little uh, fiber-like structures to, to filter their filter their food. There's an animal from uh, this pig, this pig uh, from uh, Southeast Indonesia, uh-huh. uh, the, what's called a babarusa, the okay. babarusa pig, that has these giant uh, tusks that grow up and over the top of the skull and in some cases grow back into the skull. And that's not extinct. You could see that today, right? That's right. This animal is still alive today. It's one of my one of the my favorite pieces at uh, at the exhibit. Because again, why would such a structure evolve? And in this case, it's probably sexual selection. It's trying to attract a mate. Many of these features that you see on, on the head, these these antlers and whatnot, are largely found in uh, with on the males only. And so these are males that are either fighting other males to attract them, attract uh, uh, the females or just simply attract females. There's also uh, something in the exhibit that would make trophy elk hunters uh, drool. Uh, does that have something to do with uh, attracting a female? Um, yeah, this is this animal, this Irish elk. I mean, this thing has about a seven-foot antler span. So if you think an elk or a moose is big, I mean, this thing puts those to, absolutely to, to shame. This is an animal that lived in... Uh, 
in Europe, in Northern Europe, as well as in, in Asia. It's a real specimen. It's one of our specimens at the, at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And this is an animal that was with us until about uh, you know 7,000 years ago. So it did not go extinct until very, very recently. Now, how many uh, of these uh, fossils and bones and, and things are actually from the Museum of Nature and Science? Well, this is the only piece that, that we have contributed. But one of the great things about this exhibit is that most of the pieces on display are real specimens. They're real artifacts. Now, how do these animals develop these weird traits? Because typically mammals are pretty much similar. You, you know what a mammal is, but these have taken a different path. Exactly. Yeah, these are extreme modifications. These are extreme adaptations. And so in some cases, it's because of of, the, of where they're living. So if they're living in the water, the, a lot of these animals will develop flippers uh, for swimming. If they're burrowing underground, they'll develop giant hands and fingernails to, for, for digging. If they're flying, you know, they'll develop their, their, their hands into a completely different way, and, and that is in the form of wings and, and bats. Uh, so that all be, depends on the environment in which they're living. Now, in the case of, of antlers, that's because of, again, because of sexual selection. That's not because of their environment. That's because they're trying to attract more and more mates, sort of like the, the, ta- the tail feathers of a peacock. Oh, sure. And you mentioned hands. What do you mean by hands in that? I mean, we have hands, of course. Yeah, and our hands are actually quite an adaptation as well. I mean, we have the opposable thumb. Mm-hmm. If you think of other animals, for the most part, outside of primates, they do not have an opposable thumb. So that is one of an adaptation for us that is, is quite unique. And then other animals, like again, like a bat, they've elongated their hands and then they've spread out this membrane over that hand so they can fly. So are you saying that humans are extreme? Most definitely. Humans are extreme in, in several ways. For example, we have giant skulls that hold a very large brain. So we're, we're incredibly intelligent compared to other animals. Uh, we have, the, of course, the opposable thumb that allows us you know, to uh, make tools and to manipulate different things. Now it allows us to text on our iPhone. <laughs> and then, of course, we're, we're one of the few animals that walk on two legs. We're the only animal that walks, mammal that walks on two legs except for kangaroos, which would hop, of course. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with Tyler Leeson, a paleontologist with the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. He helped put together its exhibit, Extreme Mammals, which is currently on display. Uh, some of these extreme traits evolved as self-defense, uh, recognizing kin, attracting mates. Um, talk about maybe other animals that have, that have evolved a similar way. Well, yeah, there. I mean, of course, if you look at all other other animals, this is they're they're convergent on on certain structures. Convergent. So there are animals like that we have on display these large armadillo-like animals, the size of a small Volkswagen Volkswagen Beetle, huh. the uh, the uh, uh, Glyptodon, which have developed these shells, right? And of course, other animals have developed shells as well, like modern day turtles. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, if you go back into Animals that go into the ocean and swim, uh, like whales, they've developed flippers, and you see flippers developing in other animals as well, and that you know, like you know, uh, sea turtles. Mm-hmm. And so, this is a great example of convergent evolution. There's also a, a whale with legs uh, and large teeth. It doesn't look anything like a whale, but it's still related to a whale. That's right. The evolution of whales is one of those great evolutionary stories. We knew whales evolved from a land mammal, 
And we knew that based on who they're related to, their most closely living relative are hippos. So we knew they evolved from something that walked on, on the land. And they're one of these groups that have a wonderful fossil record hmm. documenting all of those changes going from a, a land-based animal to a purely uh, ocean-dwelling animal. And so we have several of these fossils on display at the, at the museum, uh, again, showing sort of these intermediate morphologies between an animal that would be larger living on the land to one going into the ocean. So hippos and whales related. They are related, and they're what they're, they're, they form a group that's called whippomorpha. <laughs> whippomorpha. Whales and hippos. I mean, who <laughs> says that scientists don't have a sense of humor? Right? <laughs> Speaking of, of the hippos and, and large animals, what is the largest mammal in the exhibit? So the largest mammal in the exhibit is this animal called Indracotherium. And in fact, it's the largest land mammal to have ever have lived. And it lived around 25 million years ago in um, modern-day Mongolia uh-huh. and in China. And this thing was about uh, 15 to 18 feet tall and weighed about 20 tons. And its modern relative is a, a rhinoceros. All right. And, and visually, it's just imposing at, at this at exhibit. Anytime you can walk underneath of the animal and look up and see its belly, I mean, that's, that's an imposing animal. It's very large. Uh, briefly, I, I want to talk about how your exhibit also explores extreme extinction, uh, noting that mass extinctions have occurred at least five times over the past 500 million years, with a sixth possibly occurring right now. How so? That's right. I mean, we're very likely entering into Earth's sixth uh, mass extinction. Um, there's many probable causes for that, uh, you know, just habitat fragmentation, um, overpopulation of humans, hmm. for example. There's 7.3 billion humans on, on the planet. And, for example, right here in Colorado, if you were to go back even 10,000 years ago, there were a lot of animals that are no longer with us today. We had mammoths and mastodons roaming around, giant ground sloths, lions, uh, cheetahs, you know, all of these, what we think of uh, of African animals, we had here right in, in Colorado up to about 10,000 years ago. And then when humans arrive, there's a strong correlation between the arrival of humans and the disappearance of these animals. That's not to say that humans are the sole cause. There were other things going on. Uh, there was climate change. There was a number of other natural processes going on. But uh, um, there's many people that would argue that uh, it's largely humans and uh, that are the result of this mass extinction. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Paleontologist Tyler Leeson helped put together the Extreme Mammals exhibit at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. The exhibit runs through this Sunday. We've got photos of some of the bizarre creatures, and you can see them at cprnews.org. Yasmin Azimi, who performs as Yasi, may be young, but she has years of experience as a soulful voice in Denver's hip-hop scene. She performed with local rap artist H. Wood in 2013 before recently launching her solo career. Following the release of an EP last summer, Yasi collaborated with fellow Denver artist Sir Ells for the single Pink Caddy, performed here in the CPR Performance Studio.
Yasmin Azimi and her single Pink Caddy performed here in the CPR Performance Studio. That's our show for this Friday. Thanks to audio engineer Michael Hughes and my director Stephanie Wolf. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend. Yeah.